All right, I invite you to open to Micah, the book of Micah at the end of your Old Testament. Some of you are familiar with this, some of you are not, and that's fine. We're in a series right now in the last 12 books of the Old Testament. It's called the Minor Prophets. That is not what they call themselves. The nickname probably came from St. Augustine in the 4th century. It has nothing to do with their legitimacy or their stature as somehow less than the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It has to do with word count. And generally, these have a smaller word count. And so they have earned this nickname minor. But they are anything but minor. And so today we come to the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. We're taking one book a week as we move along in our series. Micah was a contemporary of prophets and men like Hosea, Amos, and uh, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and, and, and Hosea. So he was living about that same period, 700 to 750 BC. And the big picture is that Micah is addressing one of the most important questions that faces every human being. Doesn't matter how old you are or young you are, everyone here is facing a very critical question in life, and that is, what exactly does God require of us? What is it that the Lord requires of us? There is no more important question when it comes to this life and the life to come. How can I find forgiveness? How can I be reconciled to God? How can I be in harmony with my fellow man? And so we're going to dive in. Micah's book divides by his own distinction into three sections. And it's very easy to see these sections because each of the sections begin with the same Hebrew word, Shema, which means here. Some of you may be familiar with that word from Deuteronomy 6. It's actually called the Shema. It's a prayer the Jews typically pray. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Shema means here. In each of the three sections of Micah, <clears throat> open with that word, Shema. So, first of all, chapters 1 and 2, and then it moves to chapters 3 and 5. That's the second section. And then the last section, chapters 6 and 7. And every section not only begins with Shema, but has the same pattern. First warning, then promise. So Micah's book is very strategically laid out. Starts with Shema, each section, and then there's a portion of warning, and then promise. And so there is a lot of positive in this book, and there's some very strong negative. It is a book of judgment. It is a book of condemnation and warning, and yet it is a book of hope and a book of promise. So we're going to dive in, first of all, chapters 1 and 2, judgment and promise. And first question, Micah, who's easy? Where did he come from? Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth, which is very near modern-day Lachish, or ancient Lachish, about 25 miles south of Jerusalem, southwest, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Two things. Number one, very common in the Bible to see people have visions. It's not so common among American Bible-believing Christians sometimes, but if you look for the word dream or vision in the Bible, you will find it fairly often. Number two, Micah right away tells us, like so many of the prophets, this is where I was in history when I wrote this. 
He wants you to know this is not stuff he made up. This is not anchored in myth. These things happened. Here who was, here's who was in power. Here is where I was in ancient history. And so, like the rest of the Bible, it's making very clear to us these things really happen. This is not make-believe. When you go today into a liberal seminary or a liberal Bible college campus and they tell you that this stuff was stitched together and some of it's true and some of it's not, the Bible knows none of that. The Bible wants you to know it's just as strongly true as spiritual truths, so are the historical markers in the Scripture, both scientific or historical, that these things are geographical. Here's what happened. This really took place. Here's the rulers in charge. Here's where it took place geographically. You see these things going on all the time in the Bible because it wants us to know these things that you read about are anchored in real history. This book is true. That's the point. All right. Secondly, chapters one and two, again, form the first section. First, there's warning. Then there's promise. Warning for what? Violating God's law and cheating and oppressing other people and abusing them. And the warning comes fast and furious. We've already heard a little bit of it from Keegan when he read. So I'm going to dip into verses 2 to 5. Then we're going to move over to chapter 2 and look at a couple verses there. But the warning is phrased in very strong language. So, Micah 2, 1 verse 2. Here, there's our word Shema, first section. Here, you peoples, not you people, peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it. So this is addressing the nations. That the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. So notice God's claim over not just the Jews of the earth, all peoples. The Lord bears witness from his holy temple. Verse 3, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads on the heights of the earth. If you go over to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the language continues. And this first word is a very strong word in the original Hebrew. It is a very strong condemnation. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do so. Interesting that God in his sovereignty even gives breath to those who are plotting and scheming to do evil. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, Yahweh says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. And that day people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. This is what the people will say after God has smitten them. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions divided up. So, a very strong warning. Now, God brought him, I'm going to put a slide up, because God talks about how he will judge the people. And in chapter 4, he mentions he will bring in the Babylonians. And then in chapters 5 and 7, he talks about he will bring in the Assyrians. So let's talk about this for just a second. If you're an American and you come from an American background a bit, you know there are certain dates that are very significant in our history. If I say the date 1776, or if I say uh, December 7, 1941, you would say, oh, yeah, yeah, those are, those are big dates in our history. Uh, you know, whether for good or bad, there are certain dates that are seared into our conscience. Same thing is true in any country, any nation, any people. And in ancient Israel, there are a couple dates 
that live in infamy, quote Roosevelt, that are very strategic. And two of them are up on the screen, and both of these come in the prophets. They're talked about over and over again. So the first one is when God brought in Assyria, and that is again mentioned here in chapters 5 and 7, towards the end of this book. God says, I'm bringing them in as judgment on you. Assyria came in. Now remember, there was a civil war a couple hundred years before Micah wrote, about 200 years before Micah wrote, Israel split into two nations. There were 10 tribes in the north, two on the bottom. And in 722 BC, that's one of their big dates, God brought in the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful nation empire on the earth. They, weren't, they were more than a nation, they were an empire. And he brought them in and absolutely obliterated those top 10 tribes in judgment. And so the date, 722 BC, lives in infamy in Israel's history. But there's another huge date in Israel's history. This one probably looms even greater. The bottom nation continued on. God sent prophets to warn them, look what happened up north. (laughs) Take heed. Same thing's going to happen to you. He'll use a different empire at that point because Assyria had been moved off the world stage and Babylon then had taken over. Babylon was still 150 years in the future, this second date, from when Micah wrote, yet he's predicting it. And nonetheless, God's people continued on in their sin, and God brought in, and these are mentioned in chapter 4, verse 10, God brought in the Babylonians. And the other date that rings in infamy is 586 BC. That's a huge date of sorrow for the Jewish people because that is when Nebuchadnezzar came in. Finally, after a series of invasions, and obliterated, destroyed Jerusalem, absolutely a holocaust, and destroyed the temple. And so these are the two dates that live on in infamy, and those are both referenced, not by date, but both events are mentioned as God's judgment on his people. So this is a book of judgment. The prophets speak of judgment often. The problem is, I don't like judgment. You don't like judgment. None of us like judgment, and nothing has ever changed about that. Kids don't like judgment. Young people don't like judgment. Adults don't like judgment. And the people back then didn't like judgment. You see this, for example, in chapter 2, verse 6. Here's what the false prophets, if you have a little saying or a little uh, tag above above that verse, A label, mine says false prophets. Verse 6, do not prophesy their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things that that disgrace will overtake us. The people didn't want to hear that. Don't say this stuff. Keep it nice. Keep it, tell us we're going to be healthy and wealthy. Tell us everything's going to be fine. Don't tell us about this negative bad news stuff. And you see it also in verse 11. Chapter 2. Verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, and notice how they're called, they're called a liar and deceiver, and they say, I will, and we see the word prophecy, you can pretty much plug in and preach, I will preach for you plenty of wine and beer. Well, that would be just the prophet for this people. That's what they, that's what they wanted. It, it, has anything changed? Has anything changed today? Who's popular on television? It's those who go on and go, don't worry. God is only about love. And he wants to bless, and he wants to dump my, uh, you know, health and wealth on you. I remember Ellen DeGeneres a number of years ago, asked on a talk show, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, 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 she said, but only a God of love. That's it. And that's never changed 
much to this day. Problem is, the Bible is very clear that God is also a God of holiness and justice. Recently on our study break, we were down in South Carolina. It's in a very rural area in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And there's each morning we go take a three-mile walk along this very rural road in the mountains. And, one, and the whole area is pretty much owned by a power company, Duke Power Company. So their employees tend to drive on this highway sometimes, and we'll see them, about the only people that drive on this remote highway. And we've even gotten to know a couple of them, and it's been kind of fun. But this couple weeks ago, uh, one, of, one of their top-level dudes, I guess, stopped and introduced himself, said he'd been there 30 years. Uh, we'd never met him. He started talking to us, and he found out I was a pastor. And so he asked the question, oh, what kind of church you know, do you pastor? You know, what, are you, what are you all in up there? You know? And I said, well, it's an evangelical free church. And I just got this blank southern stare. You know, like, what's that? And so I, I tried to contextualize a bit. I said, well, it's kind of like a southern Baptist church. Instantly, oh, yeah. He said, oh, I used to be a southern Baptist. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, we, we go to a different church now. We, we, we found a different kind of church. He said, it's, uh, you know, and I said, uh, well, like, like what? And he said this. He said, oh, I used to be Southern Baptist, but now I go to a non-judgmental church. <laughs> and he added these words, I feel much better when I come out. And I said, well, how nice. I said, nice, you know, nice to meet you. And then he added this, I didn't want any more of that hellfire stuff, quote. And so we chatted a little more and it was friendly chit-chat, and he drove away, and Becky and I both, as we continued to walk, we actually prayed out loud for him, that God would open his eyes. He clearly didn't seem to know the Lord. He was religious, and he had heard the gospel, sounded like, but clearly had walked away from it. We don't like judgment. We don't like it today. Didn't like it back then. Now, the first section, however, doesn't end in judgment. It ends with a remarkable promise, as all three sections in Micah do. And that promise is this. Hear this. Young people, hear this. It is a promise that after God has punished his people, that he will gather them like a shepherd gathers his sheep. And I've mentioned many times, if you've ever seen a real shepherd at work, they are very loving in the sense of protecting their flock. Sometimes they're stern with their flock, but they are, their goal is to protect that flock, keep them from harm. And the imagery here is of a shepherd gathering his sheep. You see this in verses 12 and 13. I will gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. That word remnant shows up several times in Micah. When you're doing Bible study, look for key phrases, key words, repeated phrases, repeated words. Remnant comes up several times. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord or Yahweh at their head. So the imagery here clearly points to Jesus as divine shepherd, especially in the Gospel of John. It's how he described himself. It's how John describes him, the divine shepherd king who would rescue his sheep from their sin. You have very clear messianic pointers here. So that's the first section, judgment and promise. That moves us to the second section, which is chapters 3 to 5. Again, it opens with the same Hebrew word, Shema. We know we're in the second section here. And here we see corruption and deliverance. Corruption and deliverance would be two key words here. First comes the warning, then the promise. So the warning is in verses 1 to 3. Chapter 3, 1 to 3. 
Micah specifically here is targeting leaders, the leaders of Israel. He has them in his crosshairs for perverting justice, for corruption and taking advantage of people. And through Micah, God delivers a very stern rebuke about the corruption of Israel's leaders. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob. That word listen there is the Hebrew word shema again. Here, you leaders of Jacob. So he's taking aim at the leaders now of the Jewish people. You rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil. So to not practice justice is to love evil. Who tear, now the, the, the language gets very graphic. Who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh. Graphic, it's gross. But he attributes, almost in spiritual symbolic terms, that if you're doing violence to people through injustice, you are cannibalizing them. Strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Obviously, very strong language. You drop down to verses 9 to 12, you see more of this kind of language. And here again, the Hebrew word, Shema. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort, not just a little bit, distort everything that's right. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. And yet they look for the Lord's support. They're robbing the people. They're misleading the people. They are corrupt, wicked, and violent. And yet they look for God's blessing. Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, each of you, Zion, will be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, which is Temple Mount, where the temple stood, still there in Jerusalem, will become a mound overgrown with thickets. And that's exactly what happened 150 years later. Remember, Micah's writing 150 years before God brought Babylon in, and he predicted it. And when they came in, they obliterated the temple, and the Temple Mount became overgrown with thickets. That's exactly what happened. Now, Get chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a delightful interlude because suddenly, right in the midst of all of this, there's a powerful message of deliverance. So remember, Micah is predicting 150 years before Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came in. That's why some liberal critics say, he didn't write. This couldn't have been a prophecy. How could anybody predict that 150 years ahead of time? Unless there's a God who knows the future. And that's exactly what you have here. But the liberal critics howl and say, oh, no, 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 this was all written years later and looking backwards. But that is not what the evidence shows, and it's not what the prophets claim. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, now we have this incredible section of promise. Some of the language I'm going to read here has not yet been fulfilled. And by the way, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 is almost identical to the first couple verses of Isaiah chapter 2. Almost word for word. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's temple will be established. So notice two predictions. Chapter 3, verse 12, Temple Hill will become a mound overgrown with thickets. It's going to be obliterated. But then in the last days, 
the mountain, and say, when, they, when, you say, when you read mountain there, it's because Jerusalem is in the Judean mountains, and the temple is actually built on Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac. So it's built in the, in the hills, in the mountains there in Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. So here we have temple there, temple is up again, as the highest of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and the people's Peoples, not just people, the peoples, that means ethnics, all the ethnic nations will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So the temple is up on that mountain. To the temple of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, the law of God, will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge. Now here we come to a section that has not yet been fulfilled. He will judge, verse 3, between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares, very famous verse, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation, now notice this. Tell me if this has been fulfilled. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I think we can all safely say that as a day has not yet come. Now, this, this brings us to a reminder about biblical prophecy, which is what? That the Old Testament prophecies often included a near and a far. They were both now and not yet. And you see this often in prophecy. You look at chapters like Isaiah 53 and stuff. You, there's often this now, not yet. And this goes on all the time. And the deliverance here was given and promised. Syria's coming in. Babylon's coming in. They did. That was the near fulfillment. And they were harsh on the people. And then 70 years later, God brought him back. So that was, the, that was closure there. But this also points to future judgment. In fact, there's two future aspects pointed to here. First, Messiah's coming. Well, he did 700 years later, Jesus came. But it also points to his future messianic rule because here in verse 3, it talks about a time when the nations aren't even at war anymore. And swords have been turned into something else for plowing. And people aren't even training for war anymore. So you had the near fulfillment with Babylon and Syrian coming in. But then you have this very distant fulfillment. And some of it not even occurred. And that brings us to probably one of the two most famous verses in Micah. That is chapter 5 verse 2. A promised deliverer. My heading says, a promised ruler from Bethlehem. Verse 2, this verse is often read at Advent. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah was an old name for Bethlehem, just to make sure there's several Bethlehems. Make sure that it's the specific one. And this is a very tiny, know-nothing village back then. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. From ancient times. The Hebrew word Jews there speak of eternity. Two things are mentioned about the coming Messiah. You might want to note these. Number one, Micah predicts his address, but not the, sit, not the town where Jesus was from, Nazareth. They were only in Bethlehem for a short time because of the census, if you remember from the Gospels. And yet Micah nails it that that is where he will be born, his address. Verse two, but you, Bethlehem, you are the one who's going to give birth to this Messiah. But not only is his address nailed here, his identity too. 
So Micah mentions his address and his identity. Notice in verse 2b, out of you will come for me a ruler whose origins are from old ancient times. The language picks up other Hebrew words in the Old Testament that speak of God's everlastingness, his eternality. And here you have, I think, one of the strongest affirmations in the Old Testament of the pre-existence and deity of Jesus in the Bible. And that is in Micah 5.2. Many expected the Messiah, by the way, to be heavenly in some sense. But virtually no one expected Messiah to be Yahweh himself walking around in human flesh. And yet exactly that is what is said in Micah 5 verse 2. So that is the conclusion of the second section of Micah. Again, warning and then promise. And that brings us to the last section of Micah, chapter 6 and 7, where here we have accusation and forgiveness. Accusation and forgiveness, chapter 6 and 7. In this final section, we'll once again see the pattern. Warning, promise. So first, what's the warning? Well, chapter 6, verse 2. Hear, you mountains. So there's our word again, Shema. Beginning this third section, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. And Micah is set up a bit like a courtroom. That's kind of the setting here. And here is the charge that God's going to level. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. Why do you need to listen? Because the Lord has a case against his people. So here it's set up like a court case. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? And so what you're going to get from verses 3 down to verse 6 or 7, God's going to remind them of what he did for them. And then he's going to say, but then you did not obey in response. So the accusation, they have veered off course. God presents as in a courtroom a charge against them. That brings us, for example, to verse 11, where the charges are getting very specific. For example, verse 11, like what did they do? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales? So you got dishonest businessmen here who are cheating their customers with a bag of false weights. Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. Their tongues speak deceitfully. So we have fraudulent businessmen. We have people who are liars, who are deceitful. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you. Why? Because of your sins. And he goes on. Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 continues the warning. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. This is a rough neighborhood here that they're in. Verse 3, both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. Judges are accepting bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. Here's the warning. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. There is a time when God sends confusion on people. So the very things that they think they're doing end up working against them. Working against them. So the warning here is very clear, but that brings us to probably in that section the most famous verse, as Pastor Doug said, of the book of Micah. And it's hence the title of our sermon today. Okay, what exactly does God require of us then? 
What is he asking of us to make sure we're right with him and right with others? I don't care what your age is. Everybody should be interested in that question. What more burning question is there on our planet than to make sure I'm doing the right things so that I get the right result in this life and the next life? And here it is. You could, I love these kind of verses. Uh, you have the same kind of verse at the end of Ecclesiastes. You know, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. You have that same kind of summary right here. So if you're wondering, what is it God wants from you? Here it is in just a few words. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, or O mortal, what is good. And what is it the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love justice, to love mercy, and thirdly, to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. In other words, you can't love God while you're cheating other people, <laughs> while you're lying to other people, while you're bribing other people, while you're taking advantage and cheating other people. If these are going on in your life and those are your patterns and you're saying, yeah, well, at the same time, I love God, which is what these people are doing. They're coming to worship. They're singing. They're reciting psalms. They're listening to preaching. And all the while, they're as corrupt as whitewashed tombs inside. Micah says, you don't love God. This is, a, this is a joke. This is lip service only. This is not heartfelt religion. This is a mockery. It, it, it is a show. And that is what he nails them on. But then there's a section of promise that comes at the end, chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. The last two verses of the book, last three verses of the book, end incredible promise that God is a God of forgiveness and mercy. Verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? Friends, let, let us hear this. This is the other side of the Lord, the very real side of him. And it is available to anyone here today who is willing to repent and humble themselves before God and fear him. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. What a promise. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob, that means to his people, and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So again and again in the prophets, we read of God's willingness to pardon those, understand who it is. It's not a blanket pardon for everybody. For those who fear him and humble themselves before him. And the evidence of that is obedience to him. This is the core of the gospel. You have in chapter 6, God reminding them, 6 verses 3, 4, 5, 6. He tells them, I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you, and then I did this for you. This is now what you need to do. That, I mean, this is, that's the gospel. The gospel is not go do these things and get saved. The gospel, first of all, is announced in the indicative. Here's what God has done for you. Here is the appropriate response. This, that, so this is a gospel pattern here. And then in chapter 7, we have God's willingness to forgive and save any who will humble themselves and believe. That's the gospel. 
This gospel according to Micah. You, this is one of the most gospel drenched of the, of the prophets, explicitly so. And it's fun, it's rewarding to see people who take advantage of this and get saved. Perhaps you've done this and been saved, or you've shared the gospel with somebody and seen them humble themselves, own their sin, and get saved. I've shared before, but one of our favorite stories in this sense was a man in our first church years and years ago who started coming to our church, then the law caught up with him, and he had been using cocaine, and then even worse, he crossed the line and he was distributing cocaine, and he was arrested. And he went to prison. Right before he got to prison, he got saved. I had the privilege eventually to baptize him. For six years, he was in the penitentiary. But we saw a metamorphosis take place. And he became a Psalm 51, 17 person. A man who was broken and contrite in spirit. Enough so that when he got out of prison, as I've shared before, I hired him. And he became our buildings and grounds director for our whole campus. And he was a completely different person, now one who had humbled himself and feared God. Friends, that's the gospel. We are a collection of moral failures here this morning. If you walked in the door today and you feel like a moral failure, well, welcome to the club. Everyone around you is a moral failure. We're all moral failures. The only difference is some of us are forgiven and some of us aren't. And the difference is if we will humble ourselves and fear God, and trust Jesus to be our Savior. That is the difference. That brings us to our summons this morning of the book of Micah. Every one of the books of the Bible has a summons. Micah has a summons to it. So let's land the plane and let's ask, what is it the Lord requires of us? What is Micah calling us to? And at least two things scream forth from this book for our attention. So, young people, kids especially, listen up. Hear, Shema. <laughs> Hear. Two things Micah is telling us. Number one, he summons us to humble ourselves before him and be saved. Friends, the Bible teaches a day of judgment is coming. That couldn't be clearer in the prophets. Page after page after page. Both temporal judgment close by, but then all of those point to a future day of judgment. As Martin Luther said, you know, and I've quoted him before, he said, I live for two days, today and that day. And he said, I keep my eye on the fact that that day is coming, the day of judgment. And the only way to be saved, the Bible says, is to own our sin on a personal level. That is what Mike is trying to get these people to do, to quit blaming others and quit cheating and to own their sin. You go back through history, very interesting. This is a, this is a watershed in our history. When you look at philosophers like Rousseau or Karl Marx, they argue that the root problem in the world are corrupt structures in society. That's the root problem. You've got a corrupt society, that corrupts people. Problem is Marxism and Karl Marx had it all backwards. You go to the Bible, it says, no, 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 no. Yeah, are the structures of society corrupt? Of course, because they're created by sinners. But if you go to the Bible, Jesus is very clear. Society is not the root problem. It is us. The root problem is that we're corrupt. That's where it begins. It couldn't be clearer than in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Listen to Jesus. This is the exact opposite of Marxism. Quote, For from within us, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. 
all these evil things come from within and they defile a man. And that's why Rousseau and Marx and others have it so backwards. The root problem is not society is corrupt. The root problem is that we're corrupt. And that is exactly what Micah is trying to get across here. And the gospel is, if I will own that and repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be saved on that coming day of judgment. I love 2 Corinthians 5.17. Some of you know it well. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old has passed away. Have you humbled yourself before God and made that most important decision? The second summons coming out of the book of Micah is to love justice. Hear this, and be merciful towards others. Justice is a huge thing among our young people today, and it's a very important theme. Like all the other prophets, Micah contains very strong warnings about oppression and injustice and taking advantage of other people, whether at school or in our homes or at the workplace or neighborhood or in our church. And Micah tells us that God considers sins like oppression, cheating, bad business practices, lying, bribery. He says these are going to be judged harshly by God. And if we're doing these kinds of things and then coming to church and pretending like everything's fine, we will have a very rude wake-up call one day. And he issues a strong warning. I want to close with a reminder from the Gospel of Luke, where we read an interesting section. There was a little guy named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector, and we're told he was, the signal is he's corrupt because it says he was wealthy. <laughs> and tax collect, Roman tax collectors were notorious for being wealthy. He lived, in moder- he lived in what is Jericho. There's still a modern-day Jericho. In fact, there's still a sycamore tree there, supposedly, that he climbed up into. Luke says he climbed up in the sycamore tree. And uh, one, one of our visits to Israel, we drove by. And it, there's a sign there that says the sycamore tree that Zacchaeus climbed up in. Supposedly it's old. Who knows? But there it is. And Zacchaeus, interestingly, it's interesting what Jesus says about him and the evidence of him being saved. So I want to read that. It, the language may jolt you a bit because of the emphasis on justice. But it says this. The Bible is clear. Let me say this. The Bible is clear we're not saved by good works. But the Bible is also clear that once we're saved, good works cannot but follow. And you see that here with some language that may startle you or shock you. Zacchaeus stood up, this corrupt tax collector who had cheated people. And he said to the Lord, Lord, look. And Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. Zacchaeus welcomed him. The evidence is very clear. Zacchaeus was converted. And he says, Lord, look, I am now going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times that amount. Now listen to what Jesus said. This may jolt you. Jesus said to him, Today, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. What was the evidence that he had come to know God? He practiced justice and went back and made things right that he had done wrong and cheated. That didn't save him, but it was the evidence he had been saved. That is exactly what Micah is talking about.